Hello, I'm Peter Tufano, and you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Syed Business School at the University of Oxford. This pandemic is not just a wake-up call. It's a dress rehearsal for humanity's most pressing problems. So we need great leaders now more than ever. And in this series, based on our programs of live online events, we're bringing you insights from our world-class research in the front lines of business. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts, and discover our library of past episodes. You'll find conversations with some of the world's most inspiring leaders, and analysis from our experts and special guests across all areas of business. We're finding solutions so that we can build forward better. Episode 7, Revolutionizing Healthcare Innovation, Putting Communities First. The national rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine in the UK has shown that when we work together, we can achieve what seems impossible. So, in this episode, we're bringing together leaders from industry, policymaking, academia, as well as entrepreneurs to discuss how all of these stakeholders can and must work collaboratively to drive community-centered innovation for health. It's time to rethink our health systems, and seeing through patients' eyes is crucial when it comes to improving services. Current models tend to treat patients as passive recipients of care, but we're going to hear how adopting an outside-in approach better responds to people's needs, and leaves no one behind. We'll hear how there needs to be a change in attitude when it comes to patient and public involvement in healthcare innovation. Future solutions need to integrate patients' perspectives into healthcare design from the outset and at every step, for example, by equipping communities to get involved in research and development. The Novartis Innovation Prize, Assistive Tech for Multiple Sclerosis, or MS, was launched in 2020 to promote solutions to mobility challenges faced by the MS community and to raise awareness of the need for outside-in innovation that involves these communities from day one. Our panel includes the winner of that prize, a leader from the disability tech space, and I'm proud to say also one of our alumni, a leading patient advocate, the EU Commission, and the university's pro-vice-chancellor for innovation. They'll be considering the future of innovation in healthcare in a post-COVID era and how we must work together across sectors to shape this. I'm now going to hand you over to the co-host for this session, Chaz Bountra, Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Innovation and Professor of Translational Medicine at the University of Oxford, to introduce our panel. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Uh, welcome to this series, Leadership in Extraordinary Times. And we certainly are living in extraordinary times. Thank you all for attending. We've got a great session lined up. Uh, we want this to be interactive as possible, so please ask lots of questions. I'm now going to hand you over to my young genius co-host, Srin. Uh, Srin, over to you. Thank you, Chaz. Uh, hi, everyone, and, and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my name is Srin, and uh, I am a technology entrepreneur and, and now turned technology investor. Um, I am a former student at the Side Business School, and I'm a mentor and advisor at the Oxford Foundry and Oxford chapter of the Creative Destruction Lab. So I was really excited and honored to be able to be one of the co-hosts today and join Chaz, our amazing panelists, and all of you today and thank you so much for joining. Before I uh, introduce our panelists, um, I wanted to share a little bit of personal experience as to why I think today's topic of discussion is so important and, and is so topical at, at this current moment. So prior to my, my, my current role, um, I, I previously started a, a company called Accommable that was a travel platform for people with disabilities or who had mobility challenges that was acquired by Airbnb in, in 2017. Now, I started this company very much born of a personal need. So I was born with a disability called spinal muscular atrophy. And it meant that for my entire life, I've had very limited use of my arms and legs. And I started a board to serve a problem that I had faced and people in my, my, my community had faced. Now, due to my disability, I, I've been the beneficiary of, of many kinds of innovation, um, whether that be powered wheelchairs, antibiotics, or experimental gene therapies to everything from home automation, sort of from Amazon and Google to apps to make it easier to travel or find restaurants. 
but all these forms of innovation ultimately rolled up into improving quality of life for people with similar needs to me. So I'm really excited that we can have conversations like today about healthcare innovation centered around helping communities more holistically. And given what's happened in the pandemic the past 12 months, I think there is no better time for a discussion around transformative and inclusive innovation that helps people and how entrepreneurship can be a driver of that. So without further ado, I'm going to start introducing our panelists. So firstly, we have Mayan Ziv, who was the winner of the Novartis Innovation Prize. Mayan is the founder and CEO of Access Now and is an activist and entrepreneur based in Toronto, Canada. Next, we have Donna Walsh of the European Federation of Neurological Associations. Donna's training is in journalism, but she's been working with patient organizations in the neurological sector since university. We're also very fortunate today to have Petrus Zilgalvis, who's the head of unit for digital innovation and blockchain at the European Commission. Petrus also has a link to the university in the sense that he was a visiting fellow at St. Anthony's College from 2013 to 2014. And finally, uh, last but not least, we have Dr. Rennie Schoenenberger, who is the global head of public affairs neuroscience at Novartis. Rennie is a public health expert and pharmaceutical executive and amongst other roles is currently a mentor at the University of Oxford's Creative Destruction Lab, also advising early stage ventures on healthcare system dynamics and the wider pharmaceutical environment. And so without further ado, I will hand back over to you, Chaz. Srin, that was uh, awesome. Thank you so much. We all recognize that even in normal times, we need great leaders. Now, certainly when you're in a crisis or when you're coming out of a crisis, or post a crisis, we absolutely need even more great leadership. We need great innovators and we need great entrepreneurs because these individuals are outward looking. They will form big collaborations, big partnerships. They will work with colleagues in industry, colleagues in government, with regulators, with funders, with other universities, with patient groups and other stakeholders in the healthcare community. And importantly, they will also work with other countries because the problems we're facing, they are global. And together, they, these networks will hopefully accelerate outputs. They will minimize duplication and wastage because of course, in times of crisis, resources are always limited. And these global networks can produce new platforms new technologies, new therapeutics, new vaccines, and drive policy change as well. Now, in Oxford, we've witnessed in the past year quite an amazing story, which maybe encapsulates a lot of what we're trying to say and discuss. You know, the vaccine story here, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. I mean, back in March last year, a couple of our academic entrepreneurs, Adrian Hill, Sarah Gilbert, they got together with the senior leadership in the university, our vice chancellor, Louise Richardson, our Regis professor, John Bell, the head of the medical school, Gavin Screeton. They worked with colleagues in government, regulatory agencies, with other funders. And importantly, they worked with colleagues in AstraZeneca, Mene Pangalos and Pascal Swara. And together they thought, OK, what, how can we generate a vaccine for this pandemic as quickly as possible? And it is quite remarkable what this collective did in 10 months. Generating a vaccine from scratch would normally have taken eight, nine, 10 years. It is quite phenomenal. And for me, the big lesson is that when we work together and we're pulling in the same direction, we've got that single focus and everybody's pulling in, you know, in that striving towards that goal, together we can do the impossible. My final comment is that sort of in universities, we produce lots of talent. We produce future leaders. Srin is one of them. We produce future innovators, future entrepreneurs. And the universities can serve to be glues for these global networks. And I believe by working with industry and with other stakeholders in the uh, healthcare community, we can be engines for innovation. So let me hand over and ask questions now to Vreni. 
Randy, I mean, we're so grateful that you're on this panel. I mean, you have a public health background. You've thought a lot about how you prepare healthcare systems for pandemics. So before you put your Novartis hat on, Brandy, maybe you could tell us what comes after a pandemic? What do you think needs to change? So thanks, Chaz. Um, I, you know, I think when I was at least working at WHO, a lot of the focus was on how do we better surveil for emerging pandemics? How do we help healthcare systems identify and contain them super quickly? Um, unfortunately, there's not as good of a playbook for how you rebuild healthcare systems after they've essentially been on pause for about a year now. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, but a lot of the early evidence that's coming in is showing that there's a huge backlog of chronic disease patients that haven't had access to appropriate diagnosis, to care, to treatment in the past year. And unfortunately, among those are many people living with neurological conditions. Um, and if we really focus in actually on neurological conditions as a case example, unfortunately, there were already issues with, with access to those three things, to diagnosis, care, and treatment prior to COVID. Um, not to pick on the UK, I just happened to have the statistics available. Prior to, to COVID in 2019, a survey of 10,000 patients with neurological conditions found that 28% of them had been waiting more than a year to see a specialist. As you might imagine, COVID didn't really help that situation. And even though um, there's been a somewhat miraculous move to, to telehealth, and this has kept a lot of appointments in the books, um, a recent analysis of NHS data shows that there's a third less neurology patients in the system in January of this year than there were last year. And so this is somewhat concerning because this means that people are not getting the care that they need. And additionally, for, for neurological conditions, these tend to be complex conditions that require complex care. So it's not just access to specialists. Um, it's access to MRIs, to blood work, to, to rehabilitation appointments. And we're hearing from patients across Europe, in France, in Spain, Italy, Czech Republic, Hungary, um, that their access to, to this type of care has also um, been reduced. I mean, we have one survey that shows that 75% of all rehab appointments for, for multiple sclerosis patients in Italy have been canceled or delayed as a result of the pandemic. And just so I'm really clear, this is not to point any fingers or cast any blame on healthcare systems. Um, I think the response to COVID has been Herculean, right? But the fact remains that access to diagnosis, care, and treatment before COVID was a challenge for these patients. COVID made it more challenging, and we're likely going to see a backlog of these patients really, really urgently needing access to care. So I'm going to pause there, and I know that sounds like a somewhat gloomy picture, but um, I'm actually pretty optimistic that if we work together, we can address these challenges. And I'm optimistic because of what you actually just described, Chaz. When you come together and work across sectors and you put a bunch of really great brains together, you can basically address really unprecedented challenges and do it quite quickly. So this is a call to action a bit for everyone on this panel, for everyone in, on this call, for, for all the stakeholders that were involved in this COVID response, to come back together for us to rebuild healthcare systems better than they looked like before. And as we'll talk about later in this call, build it directly with the communities, with patients, um, and leveraging a lot of the new technologies that are coming online. As Novartis, we are committed to, to, um, to that call to action, and we're really looking forward to partnering with whomever is willing to work with us on these challenges to help healthcare systems and people living with neurological conditions. Renny, that was such a thoughtful answer. Thank you so much. But Teres, maybe I could turn to yourself. I mean, sort of, what do you think is the role of policy and institutions in fostering entrepreneurship in health? And how is the European Commission contributing to and supporting innovation in healthcare, which is fit for a post-COVID future? So, well, thank you for giving me the floor. It's great to be back at Oxford, but it's not as good to be here virtually than uh, cycling around town or being at a high table. But uh, happy to get the uh, chance to speak a little bit about our startup policy. In fact, this last Friday, uh, 24 EU member states and uh, Iceland together signed a startup nation standard of excellence. And they committed to, first of all, fast startup creation, smooth market entry, uh, an entrepreneur being able to set up a startup, a legal entity, in one day for no less than 100 euro, attracting and retaining talent. Uh, visa applications should be processed within a month. 
stock options, enabling employee stock options for startups, which is one of the great engines for growth, innovation for regulation, including in regulatory sandboxes, which is something that we do in the European blockchain partnership. We have a regulatory sandbox launching for blockchain applications, including in health. And in fact, we have a use case launching across the entire EU on uh, social security cards, which obviously play a part in healthcare and in people's uh, social welfare as well. Innovation procurement, including tech transfer policies, committing to that, and access to finance, which is one of the areas, whether they are our health, uh, e-health tech entrepreneurs or others, getting them access, especially to scaling up finance. Also, we want to see in our startups, social inclusion, diversity, and want to protect democratic values. And we want digital first. So following, for instance, on the example of Estonia's great once only principle, which is something we're trying to implement very much in our, uh, our e-government uh, approaches, for instance, in the recovery and resilience facility, we want to be able to have both citizens as well as consumers and enterprises utilize a possibility to submit digital information, information only once, and not have to repeat it, uh, allowing the authorities with their consent to use it multiple times. And then actually I have a very concrete example that uh, Commissioner Thierry Breton, who I work for, uh, signaled in his speech at the Startup uh, Nation's um, standard signature uh, ceremony last week. And this is, for instance, BioNTech, which is a German startup which repeatedly received uh, EU funding over the years. And it uh, has got this great uh, messenger RNA discovery, which we're very proud of. And also we're very proud that millions of these vaccines have been exported all around the world to help others also outside of Europe. Thank you for your attention and I'm, I'll be back. <laughs> well, Peterius, thank you very much. I mean, we've all heard about BioNTech and uh, we, applaud it and we're grateful for it and uh, the impact that uh, that vaccine is having across the world. So I'm going to hand over to Srin now to field some questions. Srin, so over to you. Super. Thank you, uh, Chaz. And uh, thank you, Petr, for, for sharing those comments of, of all the great work that is, uh, that is happening at the moment to stimulate entrepreneurship. So moving the conversation along slightly, we've talked about innovation and stimulating entrepreneurship from this perspective of the public sector, but now I'd be really keen to see sort of some of the initiatives happening within the private sector to stimulate innovation and to, to again, to hopefully engage communities and to, to build to build innovation that is inclusive of, of the communities that are being served. And so for this, I'd like to bring Rennie back in. Rennie, um, as you know, I, I, was, I, I, I was a judge for the Novartis Innovation Prize that took place last year. So maybe you could take, love for you to take the opportunity to share more about the Novartis Innovation Prize for multiple sclerosis and what it was trying to achieve. Sure. So positive healthcare outcomes are not just solely um, the function of what happens in a clinic or the treatment received, although obviously those are absolutely crucial. Um, modern public health research um, in medicine actually show that, that in many cases, there's also complex interplay between outcomes and other broader quality of life factors. And this is especially true for neurological conditions, which can unfortunately cause extensive disability. Um, in fact, neurological conditions are the number one cause of disability-adjusted life years for those under the age of 50. Um, and a lot of the daily challenges faced by people living with these conditions, um, much of them faced outside of the clinic, obviously can have a, a, an enormous impact on their overall health. Um, so we looked at, at MS specifically um, because, you know, so look, MS is a disorder of the central nervous system where um, the flow of information within the brain, between the brain and the body is disrupted. And while MS manifests in different ways for every patient, many people living with MS will unfortunately experience some limitation in limb function and may eventually require assistance with walking or use of a wheelchair. Um, Novartis has a long history of work in multiple sclerosis. We're one of the original pioneers in the development of, of innovative therapies. We've been working in this space for 15 years. But when we started speaking to people living with, with multiple sclerosis or the patient advocates that represent this community, we consistently heard that one of the biggest issues and challenges that they faced were around mobility and accessibility. 
Um, a lack of mobility often left them feeling isolated, precluded their access to services or care, and rendered them dependent on, on caregivers that they would prefer not to be dependent on. So it's pretty clear if we wanted to improve the overall health of people living with MS, we needed to support broader um, solutions beyond the clinic, you know, so-called beyond-the-pill solutions. Um, and we needed to do this directly with the community of day one. So if we're looking at what we decided to do about this, we launched the Novartis Innovation Prize. This was $250,000 grant prize for a solution that addressed mobility or accessibility concerns for people living with MS. Um, importantly, that solution had to have been co-created directly with the community, and it needed to be concrete. And by that, I mean um, that it needed to, to be something that could be easily scaled, um, was accessible from a pricing perspective, and would actually reach the market quickly. And we, we had, if I can be really honest, um, somewhat low expectations at first as to what the success of this was going to look like, I and mean, we'd never done it before. But actually, the response was, was amazing, and it blew us away, and actually is, I think, a sign of the opportunities in this space. Um, shortly after we, we launched this prize, we had um, you know, heavyweight venture capital firms like Sequoia get on board. Um, Srin, you joined us from, from Airbnb as a disability tech expert. Um, we had Wired Magazine in the mix. We had Uber and Microsoft also involved. Um, and more importantly, we had 200 applicants from around 35 countries um, and they were incredibly impressive. Um, I'm not going to steal Mayan's thunder um, and talk, I let her talk about how cool uh, Access Now is, but I think Srin, is, as you know, is a pretty impressive um, lineup of applicants. Um, and I guess, you know, one of, one of my final notes on that has been that they were so impressive, there's been an amplification effect. Um, a lot of the top 10 finalists for the prize um, as a result of, of some of the publicity drawn have gone on to get other venture capital funding and this means, actually, that even more solutions um, for people living with multiple sclerosis will reach the market. So Novartis is, is quite happy to have gotten the ball rolling on that. So I'll, I'll sort of finally um, hand it over. But I think, you know, this, we're here today to not only talk about the Innovation Prize, which obviously Novartis is quite proud of, but to support a broader conversation of, of why outside-in community-partnered innovation is so important. And it's not just a you know, tick-the-box exercise. It's actually a win for everyone. The innovations that you get out of it are so much better, and they come so much faster and so much easier. No, thanks for that, Rennie. And, and, you know, as I sort of mentioned in my introduction as well, like the fact that one can access interventions that are beyond the pill have personally had sort of positive impact from a, from a medical and healthcare perspective, but may not have been considered traditional uh, healthcare innovations. Um, but taking again, ex expanding on that point further, I'd love to bring Mayan into the conversation. And when we, are, when we do think about innovation, it often does spring from personal problem solving. Mayan, how have you used your personal experience to, to drive your work? And, and how did you use your personal experience to create access now? Hey, Srin. Thanks for the question. And I'm so glad that I'm here today. You know, similar to your experience of, of living with SMA, I also uh, kind of grew up with my disability SMA as well and uh, have constantly navigated a world that wasn't built for me. Uh, you know, from, from places with steps at entrances to uh, lack of good customer care, uh, broken elevators, you name it. Uh, and sometimes it's just a overall level of, of uh, unawareness that accessibility matters to my life. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm 30 now and I've consistently navigated the world. I love to travel, I love to go places. Uh, and, and even when I was starting out in my career, um, it became very apparent to me very quickly that the built environment was just not designed with me in mind. Uh, and I was constantly struggling to find information to at least let me know which places I had access to and which businesses were not welcoming to me as a customer, for example. And so, you know, I, I had this really amazing opportunity. I was studying uh, at school and university. I was focused on my master's degree in digital media, and I decided to focus my time on accessibility and, and the disability rights movement and really focus on how can we innovate in this space? There have been lots of innovations in technology, but there weren't at the time very uh, 
very many innovations regarding accessibility, mobility, and navigation. Uh, and so it just started with my own experience, wanting to solve my own problem. And very quickly, I was able to connect with my community of people with and without disabilities to understand the major pain points that people were also experiencing. You know, I, I need places that are scent free. I need places that I'm going to be accommodated with my, my guide dog. I need spaces that have low lighting or are quiet. Uh, and you know, the expansion of what accessibility means has really been defined by the community that we've worked with at Access Now. And so, you know, I was so excited about this Novartis Innovation Prize because it really, first of all, put accessibility at the forefront of innovation and, and recognize the importance of community-led initiatives, but specifically being able to engage with the MS community, we were able to build a, a platform that amplified the importance of accessibility for and by the community. And so Access Now today is exactly that. It's a platform that lets people search for, rate, and discover places based on the accessibility criteria that they need in their own lives rather than having that dictated to people by anybody else. No, totally right. And, and, I, and I think, you know, both you and I have, you know, in, in the past may have had some hesitancy around sort of when engaging with the healthcare world and being considered considered patients. And so taking that, how, how do you see the difference between innovation around being a patient, but instead innovation around community? What do you think the key the key differences are between those two approaches and and why do you think that distinction is important i think that's a great question sren and you know even if you look at the differences between the medical and social model of disability for example within the social model rather than assuming that there is a problem with a patient or a person who fundamentally needs to be fixed the social model looks at the world around and determines what is it within the environment that is a, a disabling factor. So for me, you know, as a person with a physical disability, looking around my world and understanding that there's nothing wrong with me being born with a neuromuscular condition, but that there are many things in the world that are disabling me from reaching my fullest potential. And often, specifically for me, that can be barriers in the built environment or many other things. Uh, and so I think, you know, when we expand uh, patient or, or client health to being person first health, we can also expand to understand what community health is about. And so the, the importance of someone feeling independent, reducing anxiety and the ability to navigate their communities and the world at large, not feeling uh, that there are so many barriers out there in the world, that there is opportunity, that there is possibility, that there is meaningfulness and the ability to connect with other people, you know, understanding that there are many accessible technologies that can empower me, for example, to live my life better and with more ease. We, we often make a distinction between people with and without disabilities. Uh, but for some reason, we don't recognize that cars are an assistive technology that allow us to get around faster or that people who wear eyeglasses are another way in which you can actually see the world with more clarity. Uh, but then all of a sudden, when we look at a wheelchair, we see that as a negative. We see that as a wheelchair bound situation where for me, my wheelchair is one of the most enabling pieces of technology in my day and definitely throughout my life. So I think when we begin to understand that we can design solutions based on people's lived experiences and consult and connect to actually have those solutions be driven, inspired and designed with and by the community, I think that's when we get to really exciting opportunities for innovation, because rather than assuming that we know what people need, we're constantly asking, what do you need? It seems so simple, but often we forget that piece because, you know, specifically within the disability community, the phrase nothing about us without us is one of the most powerful things that you can live by, including people with disabilities at every stage 
of a design uh, at every stage of a solution is one of the most important ways to make sure that that solution is actually going to be representative and authentic to the needs of people who actually need the solution to begin with. You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times with me, Peter Tavano. In this episode, we're talking about inclusive healthcare innovation with leaders in the field. Professor Chaz Bountra, Pro Vice Chancellor for Innovation at the University of Oxford, tech entrepreneur and accessibility expert Shrin Manapali, Mayan Ziv, who's the CEO of Access Now, Petra Silgalvas, head of the Unit for Digital Innovation and Blockchain at the European Commission, Dr. Vreni Schoenberger from Novartis, and Donna Walsh. We're going to hear from Donna next. She's the Executive Director of the European Federation for Neurological Associations. Donna has worked as an advocate for patients to change policies on behalf of individuals at the national, regional, and global level. She's now an advocate for people with neurological conditions. We know that things haven't always gone right in terms of inclusion of community voices. What does Donna think needs to change? Yeah, so I want to pick up, I think, on what Mayan just said, and, and that really is the fact that more often than not, we've been involving people too late in the process. And I think she's given an amazing case study in terms of when we innovate based on the community needs, when we define those needs from the outset, we can create these solutions that really are embraced by those affected. And I think in the past, we've seen too much that innovation has raced ahead. And it's only when the solution is ready to be launched or to be put on the market that those people or the users um, are then consulted. And I think at that point, it's often, you know, we get requests for endorsing or rubber stamping, and that's not good enough. So for me, I think what we need to see is really a culture shift and a major change in attitude when it comes to patient and public involvement in health innovation. Because I think what we've seen during the pandemic is that we can have sophisticated processes developed and in place, but very often when the going gets tough, and as Chaz said earlier, you know, in, in times of crisis, something's got to give. And I think what's what we've seen during the pandemic is that this systematic patient involvement has fallen by the wayside at a time, bizarrely, when actually that patient involvement has been needed more than ever to look at the way that we can continue to deliver healthcare to our patients, to those living, um, in my case, with neurological disorders. So I think this is something that we really need to address. Now, we have seen, I think, hope in terms of how digital technologies have been used during the pandemic as sort of mitigating actions to the service disruption. And we have a lot of learnings that we can take forward um, in terms of, as Vrini was saying earlier, really using this acceleration in the digital transformation of healthcare to build our healthcare systems back better, to future-proof them, to build resiliency in our systems. The challenge I think we have to live up to is that we need to involve the patients in all of that policy making and decision making because otherwise we're creating a future healthcare system that really is not addressing the needs of its users and that's just not acceptable from my point of view and we've seen this in the past where we've had these periods of health innovation patients haven't been involved and the end result has been something very very poor i remember when i started with my work with Enefna maybe eight, seven, eight years ago, we saw this proliferation of mobile phone applications. Every stakeholder was sort of throwing out a mobile phone application to all of the communities that came under our umbrella. The pharmaceutical industry were, were really embracing this trend. And I remember at one point an application being developed for people living with multiple sclerosis. Um, it was brought to the market. There was lots of fanfare around the launch. And when the patients started to use the application, and they very quickly stopped again. And when we asked them, you know, why are you not using the app? What do you not like about it? They said, well, actually, we're living with a condition that's chronic, but is relapsing and remitting in nature. So part of the time, I feel fully well. And I don't want to have to log into this application every day to proactively say how I'm feeling, what symptoms I'm experiencing. You know, I want to forget about the fact that I'm living with this debilitating condition when I'm having these, these good phases. Um, what about wearables? What about sensor technology? 
And I remember at the time thinking, did nobody think to ask this question before they ran down this route of actually developing this, this, these types of applications? And we saw, I think, around that time, you know, these applications come into market and a couple of days later being completely dormant because they really weren't addressing the needs or even if they were addressing the needs, they were addressing them in the wrong way. And I think this is my concern when it comes to the sort of acceleration of the digital transformation of healthcare during and post pandemic. We've seen a lot of knee jerk reactions. We've seen a lot of innovation just because it's possible, but not because it's really necessary or it's really addressing unmet needs in the right way. And when we asked our community, you know, do you see this as a positive thing? They were really split into three, three distinct categories. So we had, you know, a third who were super positive about this. There was a third who were really negative about this. And then there was a third in the middle who felt I'm a little bit undecided, not quite sure that this is moving in the right direction. And that's also something I, I think we need to bear in mind, that it's not just a case of one size fits all when it comes to the patient community. We need to be flexible. We need to be agile. We need to design solutions that work in the interests of this really broad and diverse community. And the other thing I, I just wanted to mention is that I think it's not just about involving people from the start. As Mayan said, it's involving people at every step, but also, you know, at the end to get their feedback. You know, the user satisfaction, is this working for you in the real world? But also, what are the outcomes of this? And this is something I think we failed to really capture during the pandemic. Has this shift really changed outcomes? Is this as good as seeing the doctor in the surgery? Is it better than seeing the doctor in the surgery? Because I think the, the risk we see with innovation is that we sort of run down a route just because it can be done, but not because it really should be done. And that is something I think only those living and affected by the disorders we're talking about can really contribute to the conversation. No, thanks so much for that, Donna. I think maybe just to, sort of to, to, to wrap that point up, um, for the audience today listening, thinking about what, what, what does the future hold? So let's sort of fast forward, you know, maybe five to 10 years from now, what does ideal behavior and operation look like um, for the inclusion of those voices? What, 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 would, what would ideal be? So I think ideal, going back to what I just said, is involving from the start, involving at every step, and making sure we capture the feedback at the end. So I think it's that ongoing involvement and not just sort of an ad hoc approach every time we think about it. The other thing I think we need to think about is actually equipping the communities to get involved. And you know, a good example here is if we look at the pharmaceutical industry and research and development that's happened in that space. You know, for many years now, we've really been empowering and equipping patient advocates with the skills they need to get involved. Um, for example, at EFNA, we've been running our own training initiatives for neurology advocates. Some of you might have heard of UPATI, which is the European Patients Academy on Therapeutic Innovation. And this is all about empowering patients to understand how research and development works and where and how they can get involved in that continuum. So, you know, it ranges from looking at how do you articulate unmet needs, how can you design a clinical trial methodology, exploring patient relevant outcome measures and endpoints, thinking about equipping patients to get involved in regulatory and reimbursement decision-making. I think we have to do the same sort of thing in the area of health innovation, because what the pandemic has also showed us is that there's this major digital divide um, and there's major issues in terms of digital literacy. And we need to really bring people up to speed in terms of what we mean by health innovation, how it happens and how they can get involved. So I think one of the things I'd like to see is an investment in that sort of capacity building. So patients really feel empowered and confident to get involved and to bring their voice into the discussion. The other thing I think we need to ensure is, is diversity as well when it comes to patient representation. I think for many years, you know, we saw the same people representing the patient in discussions with the various stakeholders. Um, I remember again, when I started in this position, the board of directors of our organization were all women they were all white women and they were all women over the age of 55 and they also all came from a pretty high income socioeconomic background because they had the resources to be able to devote their times and energy 
this type of volunteer work. There weren't young people trying to hold down full-time jobs or people in education or people from lower um, socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, and that, I think, is a risk that, you know, when we talk about patient involvement, we just centre our viewpoint on those patient representatives who we see as experts um, in the system. And that's something we have to get over. Um, also, I think we've often seen some of the stakeholders, the industry in particular, you know, having focus groups or discussions in English-speaking countries, because that's the sort of common language of science very often. And I think what we have to do is make sure we're bringing in those broader cultural perspectives, and that's something I'd like to see more of. One other point I think is important is we also need to compensate um, patients for their time and also acknowledge their expertise. So if we're paying doctors, if we're paying um, academics, if we're paying health economists, we should be paying the patients because they are bringing their lived experience into the discussion. And that experience is as valid as any other input that you're going to have, probably more valid because essentially you're doing user testing. Um, so I think we really need to see that start to happen. And the last point I just wanted to make was around how we integrate the patient perspective. So again, going back to what I said earlier, you know, sometimes we have this very sophisticated processes for patient involvement. We can bring the patients to the table. We listen to what they have to say. But as soon as they leave the room, we think, OK, but how do we integrate that into what we're trying to do here? So it's one thing to sort of generate evidence or generate a perspective. It's another thing to integrate that into the decision-making process. I think we need to think a little bit more about how we use that patient perspective in the most meaningful way. Thank you, Donna. And also thanks for calling out specifically the need for a greater diversity in patient representation and definitely a, a key issue and an important issue at the moment. Um, before I hand back to Chaz, I thought now might be the opportune time to to take a question um, from the audience. Um, and actually, funny enough, it's, it's a question that's sort of going to get directed back to you, Chaz. Bernard asks, during COVID-19, we saw collaborative innovation by way of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. What do you think are the obstacles to collaborative innovation in normal times? Yeah, thank you, Srin, and thank you, Bernard, for the question. I actually think there aren't any obstacles. I think the important thing is that all of us in this ecosystem have to recognize what are our strengths and what are our weaknesses. I think we have to be humble enough to admit what our weaknesses are. And then we need to work with partners who, who have strengths in those areas. So with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, there is no way you know, we would have been able to manufacture 3 billion samples of the vaccine and distribute them the low, middle, and high-income countries all over the world. We had to partner with a company like AstraZeneca, and so uh, I, I, you know, already in Oxford in the Structural Genomics Consortium, you know, where we've been working for the past more than a decade with ten large pharma companies, seven patient organisations, more than two hundred academic labs, and what we've been trying to do is just create win-win scenarios. You know? There are things that we can do well. There are things that our partners can do uh, uh, better than we can. And we just need to work together. And by working together, we're increasing the probability of success. Thanks, Chaz. What is your perspective of how to better involve patients and community voices more within sort of the research and intellectual endeavors of an institution like Oxford? Well, that's a tough one, uh, Swin. So, I mean, I, I recognize I'm. I'm very lucky to be working where I do. You know, Oxford, frankly, it's a magnet for talent. We have an amazing international alumni network who are keen to work with us to address big global problems. The university has an amazing brand name and convening power. We're working with lots of companies. We have a, an awesome collaboration with Novartis, in fact, and our Big Data Institute, where colleagues are working together on using AI to accelerate the discovery of new medicines. But let me share with you, I mean, over the past year, many people have reached out to me and asked me the following question. Why is Oxford in the news on a daily basis? Why is Oxford now the most talked about university on the planet? And, you know, of course, we've got great people and we've got great resources and we've got great infrastructure, but many other institutions have got that. 
I think there are two things that are probably pretty important. One is culture. We have a culture here of collaboration. We recognize that the world is facing some big challenges. Today we're talking about healthcare, but you know, climate, pollution, energy, etc. These are big global challenges. And the only way we're going to tackle those challenges is by coming together, coming together across disciplines, across departments, across divisions, working with other institutions, other universities, working with industry, governments, regulators, funders, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera patient group, society more broadly. We have to work together. That is the only way we're going to accelerate new medicines for Alzheimer's or mental health or multiple sclerosis or aging or rare diseases, etc. The second thing is, I think in Oxford, we're lucky that we have a culture of ambition. You know, I'm often saying to many of my colleagues and sort of, and forgive me, this is a bit of a bias, but I'm not interested in incremental research. You know, what we need to do is we need to do transformative research, you know, develop new technologies and new platforms that are truly going to change the world and going to benefit the lives of millions of patients all over the world and improve the lives of everybody on the planet. So I hope that answers your questions, Fred. Thanks, Chaz. We're sort of moving into sort of the final, I guess, 10 minutes or so uh, of this discussion. And I want to start moving more to a couple of audience questions. And just looking through here, Petrus. So um, we did have a question from the audience uh, directed at you. The question was from uh, Agatha. It's whether you could give examples of funding initiatives available from the EU for e-medicine projects. Uh, definitely. As I said, I'm not the person in charge of this dossier right now, I, there is an e-health head of unit. But in the Next Horizon Europe program, in the next multi-annual financial framework, our next budget, there is an increased amount for health research and for e-health specifically. There's also a very much beefed up health budget. If anything, this crisis has shown that we need to invest more also in health implementation. And then in the recovery and resilience facility, which is the 750 billion going to the member states to reboot their economies after the COVID crisis, which hopefully will eventually be over. Um, health is a vital part along with 20% that is foreseen of this funding to go to digital investment, much of which can be digital health. This then depends on the autonomy of the country and their decisions in collaboration with the European Commission, plus 37% for climate investments, which also can go in a health area. And being responsible for the decentralized technologies now, I think one of the effects that we're going to see coming out of the crisis is that people have gotten out of the habit of, because they haven't been able to, to having regular health checkups, taking care of conditions which are not COVID. They've maybe been tracking more whether they have COVID, perhaps if we're lucky, their exercise and things that they're doing at, at home. But this link again to the health system for regular health issues, for dental appointments, which haven't been accessible to many people, and then PLUS, which is also a major goal for us in the EU, and I think for the science and innovation community globally, getting people to share their um, data and also to participate in clinical trials where appropriate. I think this is also, at least in a lot of parts of the world, taken, taken a, big, a big hit. Um, I talk frequently with the Caribbean, with Africa, with places where people have not gotten, for instance, any vaccines. And I think you're going to see and skepticism in Europe as well about people wanting to donate their data for something where, at least for a time period, they are not seeing any kind of benefit for themselves and their neighbors. So this is something else I think we're going to have to get over and that uh, something like blockchain and other opportunities for people to be able to uh, organize the donation of their own data. And there's an interesting example in the other place in, in Cambridge, a company called Fetch AI, which works with the NHS as well and artificial intelligence on citizens managing their own health data. Well, thanks. And before we start to wrap up, I just sort of also want to open it to the panel, um, whether anyone has any final thoughts on the subject that they would like to share. Uh, there was there was a question to me about where you can find uh, 
startup information. So this is uh, quite simple. The Startup Europe Club, Startup Step Up Scale Up Startup Europe Club. Please go there and you can also write to me directly. Fantastic. Well, hopefully, thank you very much, Petrus. And uh, and so I guess, you know, before I, before I hand back over to Chaz, like, just kind of want to say, like, you know, incredibly encouraged and excited by, by all the efforts discussed here today. And I think we can we can all agree there are still lots of challenges faced ahead for, for folks with, with all sorts of conditions, neurological included, uh, but feeling really optimistic that there are lots of lots of really amazing people working hard to try and make things better for people. And um, Chaz, any, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, thank you, Sren. And uh, colleagues, thank you so much for giving up your time to sort of listen to this discussion. I mean, maybe I'll make three or four very brief comments. I mean, last year was an extraordinary year. It, it changed the lives of every single individual on this planet. But I think there were some important lessons that I think everybody recognizes that science and technology is important. Universities are important. Industry is important. Regulators and doing stuff at speed is important. Making use of, in the UK, national health system is, is incredibly important. But manufacturing, diagnostics is important. But the other thing is we need great leaders, great innovators, and great entrepreneurs. It's people who make magic happen. And we need great collaborations and great partnerships if we're going to accelerate solutions to some of the problems that this planet's facing. The second thing I'd say is in healthcare, healthcare in the next couple of decades is going to get completely transformed, not by people like me, clinicians, biologists, chemists, it's going to get transformed by engineers, computational scientists, statisticians, material scientists, etc. The third comment I'd make is that sort of my ambition for Oxford is I want Oxford to be the European hub for innovation and enterprise in healthcare. And to that end, what we're doing is we're attracting lots more industry, lots more investors, lots more innovators, etc. That's the way to do it. And my final comment is, you know, having listened to Srin and Vreni and Pateris and Mayan and Donna, I'm always inspired by such colleagues. And I, I think I'm so lucky to be working in an environment on problems with people like that. And it is just a source of energy for me on a daily basis. So colleagues, thank you so much. My thanks to Professor Chaz Bountra, Trin Matapali, Donna Walsh, Mayan Ziv, Petra Silgalvis, and Freni Schoenberger. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. This is the last episode in this current series, but subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you'll be the first to know when we're back. Until then, you can find more information about this and all the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series at OxfordAnswers.org. But until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.